that you're born an Italian if you want your life to be great. See that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. From the moment you're a small bambino, you eat pizza, you drink vino. Then they make you roly-poly. You get stuffed with ravioli. If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm your host, John Viola. Very, very happy to be joined again today by the notorious P.O.B., the Italian-American Wikipedia himself, my man Patrick O'Boyle, and our associate producer, the woman who keeps all of this running, Ms. Stephanie Longo, coming to us from Scranton, Pennsylvania, as usual. So, guys, uh, good to be back together again. We have a great show today, one in which both of you are very, very close friends of our guest. And uh, as we were saying off mic, an Italian-American of prominence who I have yet to have the opportunity to interact with. So it's great to make an introduction to Michael Castaldo today. Uh, you guys both know him pretty well. He is the bomb. Mm -hmm. I agree. He is one of the greatest Italian-American. I know he's Italian-Canadian, but for today, he's Italian-American. <laughs> no, you're an American now. I mean, you're here long enough. He's one of the greatest Italian-American entertainers, without doubt, without question, the king. And I'm going to tell my story real quick of how I know him because Michael did one of the most amazing kind gestures I have ever seen anyone do when I was the editor of the suburban newspaper. So that was the newspaper covering the Clark Summit area a good, I want to say maybe eight years ago ish in that time frame. Michael came and did a free benefit concert for the Clark Summit group that was trying to take over the fire department that had closed to make a community learning center. And the community learning center now does exist up there. But Michael came for an Italian heritage celebration. I was told, find entertainment. And I'm messaging all over the place. And he's like, I'm just going to do it because this is to help out veterans. This is to help out a community. And I'm just going to come up there. He footed the bill for his entire trip. He came and performed free for everybody. And people still talk about that concert to this day up there. And it's eight years later. So I still can't thank him enough. But I just think that with someone of his stature and his caliber to do something like that, I will do anything for him for the rest of my life for that. That was just amazing. Wow. Well, that, that, let me tell you, beyond the apparent generosity and kindness in that and altruism, if you know or if you have worked in the Italian-American community as long as all of us have, you know how exceedingly rare that kind of altruism is within our community. It's not often the case that somebody's willing to do something just to support, unfortunately. So it gives you uh, even extra credit here for doing that. And yeah, I, I have to say, like I say, I've come across Michael's name and his work and his accomplishments as a musician in the almost 15 years that I've been a professional Italian-American. But in reading all of your show notes, Stephanie, you know, everybody knows Stephanie helps us to put together all of the research we can on a potential guest or topic. And uh, I'm very impressed by his entrepreneurial accomplishments, since that's another aspect that I want to talk about today. So without further ado, let's welcome Michael Castaldo on the Italian American podcast. Michael, great to finally meet you. And I'm happy that you get to reconnect with some friends today. Thank you so much for having me. The pleasure is all mine. 
if I can first of all say it was because of Stephanie and her professionalism and determination that she was able to get me to come to Scranton. And I had a wonderful experience. I'll never forget her because of the way she handled that. And I get many requests uh, throughout the year. And I have to say, uh, you guys are blessed to have Stephanie on your team. We know it. I'm the blessed one. I love these guys. Yes. <laughs> no, that's true. You are the blessed one. I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing I would not do for John and Pat, and they know that, but they don't take advantage of that. That's just, I love them to pieces. Well, we're so young in the relationship, Stephanie. I'm sure at some point we'll be asking you for something whacked out. Yeah, but I'll still do it. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah, but we have nice whacked out. Yeah. They take Italian requests. Yeah, that's true. They're, they're like, I heard somebody has good meatballs. Go check it out. Like, it's not like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's the kind of stuff you want to kind of do anyway. And we just had to nudge you. Yeah, it's not like you're picking up dry cleaning. No. That's no. <laughs> but I would do that still. Like, that's the thing. <laughs> you are the straw that stirs the drink. I don't think we'd be doing these without Stephanie uh, keeping us moving and keeping us organized. And Patrick, we love him because of his long speeches at award presentation. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, I do get a lot of speeches. Uh, have you guys witnessed Patrick doing those things? Oh, yeah. I had the opportunity to do that, and he had me rolling. I mean, I'm telling you, I think he missed his calling. Yes. He shouldn't have been an attorney. He should have been a comedian. He is that good. Thank you. He could have been the Italian-American Johnny Carson. Yes! Exactly. Yes! Yes! That would have been the greatest. I was Charlie Rose, we can't say him anymore, but Johnny Carson was a lot more fun. The greatest moments of my life as a child and in high school were watching Johnny Carson. I do have to say, though, I know, I mean, we want to really get to know Michael and talk about some of this amazing stuff in your bio, but you bring up Pat's speeches, I have to say, and I might have told these stories on the air before, but first and foremost, I think I was an honoree at the Italian Tribune annual dinner many years ago now, and Pat was serving as the MC, and he was filling in for Uncle Floyd, who does it every year and who's got... And that is a big deal. Huge, you're not especially, from the New yeah. York metro area, you're like, who's Uncle Floyd? If there's someone who can fill uh, Uncle Floyd's shoes, it's Pat. Thank you, thank you. I think you're right. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it was a daunting task because he's been doing it for like 30 years and he's got a huge following and Pat got up there and uh, I remember I was seated next to... And Pat, you might have been the honorary, I don't remember, but I was seated next to the council general from Italy to New York. And uh, she was a wonderful lady, did a lot of great here. She in looked the like she was sucking turpentine when she was on that day. Yeah, she was not very comfortable with the sort of humorous aspects to the night. And we were, on, we were on a dais and Pat went into this amazing diatribe about getting picked on for having an Irish last name and all the ways that people know he's Italian. And I mean, people were falling out of their seats. It, it was one of the most enjoyable soliloquies monologues I've ever been a part of and she definitely was having a hard time keeping her straight face and, and not cracking but she wouldn't crack she was very diplomatic I guess but yeah he had the whole audience going and then of course as one of the best men at my wedding his wedding speech is still something that most people who were there will approach me about and if they, if they know Pat they'll just bask in how brilliant it was and if they don't know Pat they will ask about him. How's that best man? He was just so funny. And so that speech was an experience in every sense of the word. Do you know, I saved, you wrote it there. 
at the at the wedding. And and you, cocktail napkin. You wrote it on the, no, you you wrote it on the back of multiple versions of the menu card, and somebody put them in the booster bag somehow. <laughs> and so we we were going through all of our envelopes the next day, and I'm like, what is this? This is like six menus, and it was your notes. I know your handwriting well by now, and uh, I saved them because it was just such a great speech. I wanted to have it forever. Oh, John, that's fantastic. What a great story. What that's a, a great, great story. story. Somebody put a speech in the booster bag. <laughs> wow. How symbolic. It was a treasure, so they gave it to you in our booster bag. Yeah, that's true. I love it. And, John, that speech is now priceless. It you is priceless. Money. Bravo, bravo, yes. bravo. I, I, it holds a near and dear spot to my heart. And, you know, at my wedding, you know, I'm, like, huge on family traditions. My grandmother brought us my great-grandmother's booster bag that like all of my family had used and somehow it got left at my parents house so my grandmother was in charge of the booster bag she would not let anybody else do it and we had to find an emergency replacement so we actually got our boosts in a pillowcase but like not like a pillowcase like a regular pillow like the the bag that a pillow comes in so it had like the name on the top and a zipper and everything and that's what we took home our boosters in but it worked and, and i guess the family other was protected for the next generation so why don't we make a podcast booster bag we should people could oh, buy for cool. their weddings the italian yeah. american podcast there's so many stories about that i'm sure yeah i mean it's the first episode we ever did actually when pat and roselle and i joined on to the team here about uh, wedding traditions and, and how much you put in the envelope and it's huge it's a huge part of who we are psychologically and actually you know michael you come to us from calabria originally by way of toronto canada yes which you know for those of us who have been around toronto or the italo canadian community you guys have a much younger immigration community and sometimes even more passionately kept traditions so are you in the united states yes part-time what's where are you now i'm in manhattan i'm in new york i've been here for uh, 35 years now after graduating from uh, music school in Boston. But my, my family still resides in, uh, in Toronto. My mom is still with us and my siblings uh, are there. Haven't seen them in the past 18 months. Wow. And, uh, I look forward to uh, seeing them as soon as the U.S.-Canadian border uh, opens up. Yeah, let's pray that soon. Yeah. I was reminded of Canada by the boosted bag because we've had that conversation with a bunch of Italo-Canadians and, you know, some Italian-American families don't keep even these traditions. But in Canada, I think if you had a wedding without a boosted bag, it would be like a shock. Yeah. You know, I think that that's still a real big deal up there. It, it's And there's a ledger kept as well, too. Oh, yeah. We have it. Wait, my, oh, my... yeah. My mother's got hers from 68. My friend's <laughs> grandma had hers from 1939. Oh, my gosh. My mother's top envelope in 1968 was $75. She got from her godmother. Wow. That was a big deal, my mother said. Well, I told you guys I've never been to a wedding before. I can't believe you've never been to a wedding. The only story that I know is that in World War II, when my aunt and uncle, so my Aunt Jenny and my Uncle John, they got married, their reception was at a beer garden here locally. And the most money that they received because it was the World War II era was like $2 in the booth stuff. Wow. But that was a lot of money. It was a lot of money back then. My grandma told me during the Depression the Italians used to put a nickel in the envelope. That's why they needed the booster bags because yeah. it was full of change. But see, but my grandmother told me is that it was kind of like Italy. Like you would have the wedding and the immediate family would eat and stuff. And then they would just get a band and then like kegs of beer and barrels of wine yeah. and cookies. And then they'd have a party for like a thousand people all night long. So people would just walk in off the street into these weddings and they would just give and put a nickel in the envelope. And it was because they all knew each other. It was like a neighborhood type of thing. 
But see, now I need a listener to invite me to their wedding just so I can say I've gone to a wedding. <laughs> it's going to come. Yep. It will <laughs> come. If you got a wedding coming up and you want the Italian American <laughs> podcast present, let Stephanie know. And we will bring the first booster bag mm-hmm. from the podcast. Yep. Yes. Now, in the States, if I'm not mistaken, the booster is given at the end of the wedding or at the beginning of the wedding? Refresh my memory. The end. The Italians got to give it the end because they calculate how much they got to put in. They all go in blank checks. <laughs> they give it at the end? Yeah. yeah. What do they do in Canada? In Canada, it's the receiving line. You give it at the beginning. That's a big commitment. Oh, that was smart. Yeah. That was very smart. You give it at the beginning. Maybe, you know, traditions have changed in these past many years that I have not been back living there. When do they do it in Italy? At the end. Don't you get the bombinetta with the, it's kind of like the quid pro quo, isn't it? I think so, yeah. You give them the envelope and they give you the favor. The favor is a big deal in Italy. Mm -hmm. It's a very big deal. It is. When my wife and I got married, we had four parties. She's from Poland originally. So our first wedding celebration was in Toronto with my family. Very intimate, no more than 40, 50 people, unlike big Italian-American uh, weddings, Italian-Canadian weddings for that, for that matter. And uh, we had our second celebration in Poland with her side of the family. So we chose to do the traveling. And we basically, we renewed our vows in Poland three, four months later. Then our third one was here in New York City with all our close friends. We had rented a yacht, tour around Manhattan, had a band. It was a fantastic time. And then our final and fourth one was in Italy at our villa and where we invited all our Italian family. And that was more in fresco rustico, where everybody was <laughs> with uh, short pants and a, a t-shirt. And um, we opened up the house and we had a little band playing and it was passing around finger foods. And all this various tradition between the Polish, Italian-Canadian, Italian-American, very similar, but still very distinct. Did they kidnap your wife in Poland for the vodka? No, you know that in Poland they have two-day weddings. Yes, two days. The second day is the leftover. Because exactly. I have Polish-American friends where I've done the two-day weddings. There you go. Yeah. But they usually kidnap the bride. Like the guys kidnap the bride, and you gotta you have to liberate her with vodka. It's like a drinking game they do. Yeah. Well, the Poles they love to drink. Yeah. That's <laughs> two days of vodka. <laughs> you know, you talk about your wedding and your wife and your marriage in Italy, and I do want to talk about your music because it's such a body of work but if it's okay with you i'd like to jump ahead for a second because uh, i notice in, in our show notes you mentioned your house in italy and that's a project that i just think the audience is going to love to hear about you were visiting your native calabria for a different wedding in 2000 with your with your then fiance now wife and uh, visited your ancestral home which had been abandoned and you decided i guess it says because of reading under the tuscan sun that you were going to take on the renovation of this project and uh, I love the fact that you, you in, in the notes, it says you had the help of skeptical family members, but after a three-year project, you revived and recreated this Villetta Mima Vittoria. Yes. And quite soon thereafter, had it rented out 48 out of the 52 weeks of the year. So a great success. And I know we talk about this theme on the show a lot, the idea of reviving a home there or an ancestral home. Can you just tell us about that experience and sort of what made you get into this and how did it go? Because I, I find that so fascinating and courageous. Uh, now looking back, John, if I knew how high the mountain was, 
and how slippery the slope was, I would have not attempted it. Wow. But my negativity is what actually made me go for it. Um, my wife now, back then my fiance, uh, just loved all my relatives and just loved Calabria, the, the whole unspoiled scenery about it. And she said, Mike, you know, it'd be great to revamp this. So I approached all my siblings and I said, who wants to come in on this and do this with me? And uh, at that time, it was the beginning of the end of the shift of the music industry where um, uh, Napster had come on the scene and a lot of file sharing. So rather than taking a certain sum of money and reinvesting into music, I wanted to put it into something else and create a revenue stream. And so reading up on Villa Rentals and reading under the Tuscan sun, I said, let me try something else. And at that time, it was only an American doctor who had a home in Calabria that was renting out his home. And then I was next. I reviewed how the people who had Tuscan Villa Rentals were doing their business learning all their mistakes and saying, okay, I don't want to do the same thing. So I spent quite a bit of years researching that. And uh, the building process, just imagine back then it was sending faxes, occasional email. So building from 5,000 miles away, dealing with contractors. I did not have the verbiage, the vernacular of learning all that it takes to build. And I'm taking out sheets from you know architectural digest and home design and showing them this is what i'm looking to create a combination of that tuscan beautiful villa the calabrian beauty the manhattan loft vibe and combine that and all my relatives thought i was a katsune americano <laughs> the the neighbors and is gonna try to redo something who comes to calabria And I'm thinking to myself, okay, they haven't read what I've read, that people are tired of doing the touristy places and they want an authentic experience. Fast forward three years, finally we got the house completed to the amazement of everyone from neighbors to relatives, even the contractors, (laughs) even the contractors who thought that my home was their home and that they had final say on how things were going to, and I have to give them a quick education that uh, not all American are Katsuni, especially those <laughs> from New York. That's bravo, bravo, Miguel, bravo. And I had to basically say, your name is not on the deed. I make the final decision. This is what I want. Well, that's typical Italy. I know better than you, even though you hired me. Exactly. My job is to tell you that you don't know what you're doing and I'm going to decide. No, no, they do know what they know, but they just have a different perspective and a different aesthetics, which I was trying to stay away from. I wanted my own aesthetics. At the end, I created this website with over 300, 400 photos. They ended up using the website as their portfolio, (laughs) as their portfolio, and they all got gigs in Northern Italy, in Milan, doing other people's homes based on the ideas that I had come up with. And I fought with everybody. You know, even now, right, this is still a popular place to rent, and obviously you were ahead of the curve. It's funny, I, I, I just got back from Italy not long ago, my wife, and uh, we were in the South, and we were talking to a lot of friends and family that live there and some colleagues and uh, 
friend of ours who over the about a 15 year period renovated a house on the Amalfi coast. And he was saying in the 15 years since he started, he's been shocked by the change in tourism in Southern Italy and the increase in tourism. And I was saying how many of our guests that talk about tourism have talked about that shift over the past like eight, 10 years and hoping that it comes back as strong as it was. Have you noticed more and more tourism in Calabria over the past decade? Yes. And if you go to Airbnb, when we started in 2003, there was a few of us. Now there's over 500. So the market is saturated. Wow. Everybody jumped on the bad wagon. All of a sudden, this Katsuni Americano is not so Katsuni after all, because then everybody jumped on the bandwagon and saw that, wow, people actually want to come to the South. And Calabria is truly the final frontier of Italian tourism. Yes. Amalfi Coast and Sicily are at least 10, 15, 20 years ahead. Yeah. So they're still rebuilding their infrastructure. The, uh, the A3 rebuilt in Calabria from um, Sorrento all the way to Calabria. Just beautiful. So they're improving the infrastructure. It's oversaturated. They're still figuring out how to bring American-level hospitality to the south. When I'm saying the south, I'm talking Calabria. Because mm. Puglia has a lot of tourism going to Greece. So they, they have a lot of American. Sicily, obviously... 10 years plus ahead. Basilicata and Calabria are still quite behind. So the tourism will eventually catch up, but it's the Euro yeah. that kind of slowed things down. When I started, it was the Lira. So I had an advantage, the Amer- strong American dollar. But soon as it switched to Euro, I started feeling the crunch. But the Italians that are rebuilding their top floor, that is Rustico, waiting for the next child to get married, and that's where they're going to live. All of them started refinishing that top roof and all renting it out as bread and breakfast. Yeah, it's amazing to see like all these alberghi diffusi, these diffused hotels and how they've impacted tourism down there. Yeah. It's obvious just reading about you, how passionate you are about Calabria. And you're right. It is kind of the last frontier of tourism, even more so than Basilicata in a lot of ways, because Basilicata has had big advancements around Matera and things like that. Yes. Your property is also attached to family olive groves. and as I understand it, you now also produce boutique olive oil, right? And amazingly enough, balsamic vinegar. So you've been inspired to do all of these different entrepreneurial things. Tell us a little bit about that and and how you came to be manufacturing these things and bringing them over and selling them in the United States. And what's that like? So when we were building the villa, my relatives on my mom's side of the family would give us one or two liter bottles of olive oil to bring back. And I did many trips during the, the phase of building the villa. And every time I would bring it back, I would go to a small boutique store that sold inexpensive bottles. I would aliquot them and then give them away during Christmas time. And then after a while, I started getting feedback. Mike, this is amazing olive oil. Where'd you get it? I said, my relatives in Italy produce it. Oh my God, Michael, if you ever consider importing it, let me know. 2004, the FDA finally proclaims what Mediterraneans have known for centuries, that olive oil, good olive oil, is good for your health, lowers the cholesterol, et cetera, et cetera. So on that note, I basically said to myself, okay, you know, I've been a musician all my life. I stayed focused. When the villa situation came around, I said, let me remain open to the possibilities and just broaden my horizon. Let me be more than 
a one-dimensional artist. Let me be a multi-dimensional artist that brings in, not things, I'm not selling widgets, I'm selling things that belong to my story. Yeah. My great-grandfather on my maternal grandmother's side of the family came to the U.S. 1896. Wow. He was part of that group that helped build the New York City subway system because Calabrians were good miners. We have a lot of them, and we know the history in West Virginia. They helped build the New York City subway. With savings in hand, after seven, eight years, he bought a plot of land that had olive trees. And hence, the original seed was planted. My grandparents expanded it to the point where my, my uncles expanded even further, where they have over 20,000 uh, orchards. And because they don't hire migrants to work their property, their land, they, and, and I have a quite extensive cousins, we're over 100, between uncles and cousins and, and various relatives, they work it themselves. I proposed to them, I said, I'd like to import this, but I want to do it differently than the way others. And I learned quickly how the farmer's market works, where the farmer gets paid in advance and knows what to plant in his field. And then the harvest comes, and then everyone who invested into their farmer's market cooperative would pick up their vegetables on a weekly, daily basis. So that's the way I designed it, as a cooperative. And I started with 25 of my closest friends. They all bought two 10-liter cans. They shared it with their friends to the point where we have over 1,000 olive oil connoisseurs now wow. throughout the U.S. and Canada. I only import once a year. I start taking orders in August. We have a cutoff in October, and the oil arrives end of November, early December. Everybody who ordered cans get the cans first, then the bottles are aliquoted, and they, they get uh, shipped out or they pick them up in January because now my busy season is Christmas. Um, and so it's too hard to do everything, and I split things up. So that's the olive oil. Uh, people who've traveled to Italy, to Greece, to France have tasted true olive oil, unadulterated olive oil. Um, come back here and then they taste what's in the supermarket. They say, okay, there's something wrong here. Yeah. They find me one way or another through word of mouth, through all the uh, various co-op members and they place their order. And many of them have been with me now going 16 years, 17 years now. That's amazing because I've been reading about how even a lot of the stuff manufactured for mass consumption in Italy is adulterated with different kinds of oils or low quality olives and this and that. And some of it is even foreign olives imported to meet demand. And you, know, you, you definitely do get a sense, even if you put good money into what you think is the right olive oil. And then like you say, you know, I had a guy who I worked with when I was at NEAF, he was Calabrese and he would go home the olive harvest every year and work from home for like a couple of weeks with his family. It was him, his mom and his brothers. And uh, one year he came back to D.C. and he brought me, I'll never forget, it was a Dasani bottle filled with the family olive oil. He must have snuck it in, in his luggage. I savored every last drop of that olive oil because it's just a totally different experience. And uh, the fact that you can bring it in such a professional way to the U.S. and to, like you say, create connoisseurs, it's once you go to that kind of stuff, you don't go back. And the Calabrese version is fantastic. And again, because of its sort of last frontier status, doesn't get the recognition that it deserves, you know? Yeah, and, and if you think about the region of Puglia and Calabria, 
combined, they produce more than 50% of the olive oil produced in all of Italy. Wow. Because the Tuscans are so savvy in marketing, a lot of the oil from the south gets shipped to the north. The northerners mix it with theirs, put it in fancy bottles, know how to market it, and sell it for three times, four times the amount that it would normally go. But the essence, the true olive oil, Puglia, Calabria, and Sicily, it's so rich. It's so deep. The taste, I mean, really, it's so rich. All you need to do is just drizzle a little bit, and you really get the intense flavor. Well, I love the fact that you have sort of uh, brought your North American entrepreneurial know-how to reversing that trend in the balsamic vinegar business, because I think everybody in the world thinks that only Modena produces balsamic vinegar, but apparently you're producing it with an ancient family recipe. No, actually it does come from Modena. It just happens to be a family that my father, my father was a Cooper way back 60, 70 years ago. And my grandfather and my great grandfather, there was a line of Coopers. That's barrel makers for those who are unaware. Barrel makers, correct. And then as, stainless steel barrels and plastic barrels came onto the market. That industry started falling. My dad then went into carpentry and then into construction. Funny that he would immigrate to Canada where there's no winemaking. Had he known, he would have probably gone to California with his, uh, his skills. But he had created these small five liter, one liter, beautiful boutique uh, barrels. And um, his clientele way back in the 50s were wine companies and balsamic vinegar companies from the north. Wow. So when you recall my story about the olive oil, I have a cousin who's got a great restaurant in Liguria. And he was telling his friends and word got out that his cousin in New York was doing this olive oil cooperative. And they were intrigued about my story. And... um, This particular family in Modena only sells to certain families, not commercially. And they said, we'd like to invite Michael into the mix. And uh, and I said, how much is it going to cost? You would not believe how expensive it is. It's age 25 years old. And I spoke to my dad. I said, dad, my dad was still alive at this time. And I said, dad, do you have a barrel that I can import this balsamic vinegar and put it in there? Because it'll tie the story together. He says, sure, let me find it. He finds this barrel that he created in 1957. Wow. And back then, the thing that my grandfather and my father did differently than other barrel makers is that most balsamic vinegar barrels have five different types of woods. And it's the oxidization that happens between each wood that gives the barrel its distinctive flavor eventually. Wow. My dad's had 10, 10 different types of woods. Wow. So I imported it. I gave a little sample to all my olive oil co-op members. I said, I'm thinking of importing this. Check this out. The response was unbelievable. And then slowly, everybody who would buy olive oil would all of a sudden also request a balsamic vinegar bottle. (laughs) And we're at that point, again, not commercially available in stores or anything like that just direct through our website and word of mouth. Well, that makes sense then that you say you have connoisseurs and not customers because it, it, to be able to get something like that, that's a rare experience in life. So that uh, I'm so 
impressed by the passion that you obviously bring to everything. And I'm thinking around this idea of olive oil and uh, your musical career, which we have yet to talk about, but inspiring the titles of your very successful CDs is obviously your passion for this olive oil because your first was Olive You, Extra Vergine came out next. Yeah, I never realized that. Yeah. That's a great point. I never realized that. That all ties together. Yeah, let's talk about the music a little bit because, you know, you are trained both in the classics, but also in, I guess, pop, right? Would you call pop? You go through multiple genres of music. Your newest CD, Cinecita Canta, is comprised of love songs from various films uh, sung in Italian, which is awesome. Give the audience a little bit about your background. It's very fascinating to me how you came into your musical career, the way you trained, the people you trained with. And I find most fascinating, actually, I have to say, that you practice bel canto, which I think is oftentimes lost to people who think of opera. So can you kind of give us a little bit of background about how you came into this wonderful musical career and how you define your musical genres? Sure. Um, I started uh, singing at a young age, like many others, in the church choir. The parish priest singled me out for a solo, not because I had a better voice at age eight or age nine than the others, I couldn't blend. My voice kind of stuck out. So that's, he said, okay, Mike, I'm going to give you the solo. And after the mass, many parishioners, not all, but many parishioners came up and que bella guagliune, que bella voce. And so the, the musical bug bit me at that moment. I said, wow, I like this attention. So at that age, it's all about getting the girls. Oh, if I can get girls at this age, and this is like preteen. So imagine um, where my mind was at. <laughs> I don't think it was in the church choir. <laughs> I don't think. Probably Patrick, not. you got the prize. <laughs> and, um, but then as, as time went on and I, I started taking up guitar and piano and trumpet, I was in Italy. My uncle sat me down and said, so I understand uh, you want to do music. And I said, yes. He says, are you aware that many musicians can't make it or they go broke or they have to have other jobs to survive. And I said, no, I didn't know that. And he says, well, I'm telling you to be respected in this field, you need to be not only talented, but you have to have skills that are marketable and you have to be respected within your own community and to be respected in your own community. I mean, you got to learn the language of music. He says, you know where the piano was invented? I said, Italy. He says, correct. He says, you know where the violin was invented? Italy? Yes. So he says, I think you should think about after high school, going into a conservatory, truly learning your craft. How many people have their uncle, who's not in the music industry at all, but so wise beyond his years, say, you know, study and learn the language of music. So at least at the very minimum, you can support yourself if you become famous, if there's an attraction to your music and to your artistry, that's a bonus, but at least you can work inside the music industry. So I took that to heart. I ended up um, auditioning and uh, studying at Berklee College of Music in Boston, which is known for attracting a lot of international students, primarily in the genre of jazz. Um, how does classical and jazz come together? Well, my audition piece, was a liturgical song, 
Panis Angelicus. Ah, uh, one of my all-time favorite songs. One of the songs that my vocal teacher at that time suggested that I that I learn. And I studied with a protege of the great Enrico Caruso. His name was Maestro Pisapia, Neapolitan. Oh, that's like smitten Naples, Pisapia. <laughs> what are you? You know the comedian Toto. Of course. Uh, Antoni Di Curtis is his, re- his real name. Toto by his uh, artistic name. He looked like him and he was so dramatic. So I learned so much from him. And um, so I started taking songwriting uh, classes and started to composing at a young age. And so Berkeley was the right choice. I could have gone to Juilliard or other conservatories, but I knew I wanted to go into production as well. And Berkeley kind of gapped classical jazz and pop and songwriting at that time when I was there in the uh, mid 80s. Um, Bel Canto is a kissing cousin to opera. Opera training is 10 plus years to sing without a microphone to the back of the theater. Bel Canto, you train to sing Neapolitan songs, to sing cabaret, to sing Broadway. Still microphone, but you don't have to have those years of experience. Maybe not the big wide range because not a lot of um, popular Neapolitan songs have the range that uh, an opera aria would have. And um, believe it or not, I never approached bel canto or singing in Italian until the early 2000s. I was doing American pop music. I was singing Italian songs at weddings and private parties, but it was only just a way to make a living and create a revenue stream. But my thing was following a pop career until a good friend up in Canada said, Mike, my dad passed away and he loved your music and he loved the way you sang in Italian. And I want to give the gift of music to honor my dad. Can you send me all your Italian songs? At that time, I had maybe four or five recordings. Send it to him two weeks later. Mike, I love it, but I wanted to give a full album. Can you go into the studio, record a few more songs? I said, okay. And hence, the Villa CD was born. Hmm. A recording that took place over a period of 10 years. And the response after he gave them, he gave like, he printed out 300 CDs. And... Um, the feedback that he was getting after Christmas. He says, Mike, I know that you love doing your original music, but uh, you're missing the mark here. You got to put out this CD commercially. I tested it in New York. The feedback was positive. I never looked back. Wow. Now I have seven CDs in that vibe, in that style. I owe a lot of it to Andrea Bocelli because he made what was not so cool all of a sudden cool because of his Conte Partido. Not only Italians, but Italophiles, people who love the Italian culture, the Italian language, who love those arias, he made it popular. You know how many people are now having careers because of his career? Oh, I could only imagine. I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. I'm like a little squirrel running around collecting all the nuts that he drops. Ah, summer. The time to get out and enjoy a little aperitivo picnic. 
Why not celebrate your Italian-American pride, too, and enter for your chance to win a Mediaset Italia picnic pack to take with you? It's easy. Just snap a pic that says Italian-American to you, post it to Instagram, and tag it with the hashtag IHeartMediasetItalia. Be sure to also follow at MediasetItaliaUSA, and you can win a picnic prize pack sent to you in the mail. New winners will be chosen every week. The picnic prize pack includes a picnic basket and blanket, a meat and cheese board, plates, utensil set, a pair of wine goblets, and a wine opener. Check out and follow at Mediaset Italia USA on Instagram to find out more. And after a long afternoon picnic, return home and enjoy summer entertainment on Mediaset Italia. There are new episodes of Temptation Island, Avanti Un Altro, and Ciao Darwin, and drama series Mazzantonio premieres in July. Why do you think this stuff has crossed over? What's changed? How did it become cool? I mean, I know his talent is is a great carrier, but there's got to be something about introducing it to people who have not been around this kind of stuff. It was that song because it gave you the essence of a Puccini song. You couldn't put your finger on it, but the melody was so so classical and it evoked this image of 100 years ago of when O Sole Mio was composed, or Io Te Vorria Vassa was composed, or Torna Sorrento, pre-1920s, before the big Italian immigration to, to the US. And for whatever reason, people were just drawn to that. And every artist has that one song that breaks their career. And he is the biggest classical selling artist of all time. Wow. He beat Pavarotti? Of course. Wow. Absolutely. Wow. And, and here's the irony that Italians in Italy don't appreciate Bocelli as much as Italian Americans, Italian Canadians, Italian Australians, Italians outside of Italy, and Italophiles. He sold over 80 million, now probably over 100 million CDs. It can't be all Italians who are buying a CD. Sure. Anyone who is just thinking of romanticizing about Italy. They just love the Italian culture so much. They ate it up. Anytime he's on PBS, there's a spike that I see on my Spotify, YouTube, because of him. Wow. There's a ripple effect. Every time he's on TV, people just can't have enough. They want it. They can't afford it. They go to Michael Castello. They go to the other artists. They go to many other tenors out there, believe it or not. That's really amazing. It's interesting to me, it's funny, this morning, my wife and I had to move the car for uh, New York City parking rules, which uh, you live here, you get it. Yeah. And uh, so we had to spend like a half an hour in the car and she plugged in her Spotify and it was uh, between two different playlists. She knows that I prefer Italian music. So I think she chose something like uh, Italian dinner party. And we were laughing at some of the, stuff that came up some of the Italian stuff from the 70s and 80s that's a little bit not my taste and I said something to the effect of like I wonder how a population that created this canzone Navidad which is so timeless and has traveled so well around the world and you know the fact that Elvis basically covered English language versions of Osole Mio and Torno Sorriento I think speaks volumes about the musical impact that these songs have that the the transcendence they have and how that's sort of been lost in, in a lot of ways. I don't think that uh, they're producing such timeless stuff anymore. And it's interesting. No way. No, they're not. But Italy's not producing timeless movies. 
Italy's just not producing. That's true. And that's a whole podcast I've said I, I could do a whole series on that. I mean, the movies they made in the 50s. I mean, like, just, just in general. Because the population decline is a big part of it, too. Yeah. But what yeah. about groups like Il Vol? Yeah, but they're covering you know? that stuff. They're, they're covering not- it, but it's still... But even some of the stuff that they're producing now, though, like some of their music, I think that's very timeless. There's this one song, Grande Amore. It doesn't compare, but at least it's something that's coming to this younger generation to maybe get them more involved. I see a lot of people, when Il Volo comes to the United States on tour, like they're clamoring to get those tickets, or that's the thing that you watch when they have the PBS specials. And it's not the super timeless, but at least it's something bringing that glorious music to a new generation, I think. No, you're right. But connect the dots. It always goes back pre-Andrea Bocelli, the three tenors. We all, including Il Volo, stand on the shoulders of the giants that came before uh, and what they created. And Patrick, I have to, to, to say that Italy doesn't produce what they used to produce because of the great brain drain that happened. Oh, the migration, yeah. 100%. Everybody that left Italy. 100%. But look at what they've brought to North America, to Canada, to the U.S. Yeah. You know, I mean, ingenuity, innovation, creativeness, it's still in our blood. They just happen to be further outside the boot now. No one believes that more than I Listen, the South's number one export has been its people. And if you see what those people have done in open societies that are not so uh, class-ridden and difficult and bureaucratic, they were tremendously successful. We're all those products. Had they stayed in Italy, Italy would be the world powerhouse today that it had has been for thousands of years. Yeah. But now, everybody left in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, the Italians didn't repopulate. And that's when people are now buying houses for a dollar. Yeah. Or Euro, I should say. Or the Calabrian region is actually paying people to move know, there and give them 30 plus grand to stay there and do something over a period of three years. I saw that I just aged out of it and I was so upset because I'm, <laughs> I'm on a Calabria kick because I my other half of my Italian heritage is from Calabria. So Michael, you're like the Calabrese ambassador for me. I always follow your stuff and I get really excited. But when I realized it's, you have to be under 40 and I just turned 40. I was like, you have got to be kidding me because I would have jumped on that just to stay there and really experience that. I'm sure there's some loophole stuff. It's Italy. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, you, you, there is you're a t- 40th year and yeah, exactly. you're 41st year. We count things. There, you I know somebody. If you really want to apply. An envelope just happens <laughs> yeah. to fall out of your pocket onto the table. Well, you know, we can have the podcast on location then from the exactly. where I end up with. A headquarters yeah. in Calabria. It's perfect. Perfect. Everything is possible. Yeah, That's right. Bringing up Calabria, the greatest Italian-American Italian Canadian monument of our age was your album, Bergamo. Yeah. Did I pronounce that correctly? Bergamo, yes. Very good. You remember when you got it the first time? Yes, it is. A tr- Everybody, I'm telling you right now, this is a pat recommendation. Get that. C- now, you don't do CDs anymore. Everything's online now, right? I, I do CDs at my concerts, but everybody basically streams. Or How down. do they bind it? How do they buy your, your albums now? Through Amazon and at my concerts. But streaming is all, you know, Apple, Amazon, Spotify. Go on Apple. Can they go on Apple Music and buy this? You have to. I'm begging you. You can't see me. I'm on my knees. 
I am prostrate before you, and I beg you, I beg you to buy this album. What's your favorite song on there? Hotel California. Very cool. Because the songs are all in Galabres. He took American hits and translated them into his local language, to his dialect of Calabrian, because Calabrian don't say is dialect, language. Joe. No, no, no. no. Patrick, don't you. say dialect. No, it's dialect language. is. No, he he no. yells at people all the time about no, that. No, no, I do right. The language is Calabrian. Your Bravo. town has a dialect of Calabrian. Bravo. Like like Nablidan is a language, right? Okay. But yeah. if you go to Torre del Greco, Torre del Greco has a dialect of Nablidan. Bravo. It works okay. a little bit different. So we're on the same page. So, so oh, I, yeah. No, you don't know. I've thrown people. I go berserk. He throws people off the show. Yes. We just have to beep out the word dialect. I beep it out. Because, <laughs> bravo, because bravo. is the greatest language in history. But you tell us about this album and what inspired you. So if you're starting to see a theme of what I'm doing, family, their stories, extending their stories between the olive oil, the balsamic, music, my uncle telling me to go and study, the villa, my ancestral home, that was completely dilapidated, and I am trying to revive it. Um, Calabria, unfortunately, has a lot of good, but has some bad. And my focus has been about presenting the good that we've offered to the world. One of the things is the Bergamo citrus plant, which 80% of Bergamo in the world is grown in Calabria on the Ionian coast. If people think about every time they put on a lotion or cologne, eau de toilette, perfume, 50% of all of that stuff, one of the essence, one of the essential oils is bergamo. If you ever drink and drunk Earl Grey tea, the primary essence of that tea is bergamo. So I wanted to preface that. And I wanted to acknowledge that many of the languages are slowly dying off. And I wanted to do my part from my perspective of maintaining and preserving the Calabrian language. Yes, the dialect of my towns. What town? Where, where are your parents from? So my father is from the town of Gioia Tauro. It's a port town, second largest port in Europe. Uh, my mom's town is 10 kilometers away, town in the Asperonti Mountains uh, called Seminara, known for its uh, pottery, its really? uh, ceramics. That's yeah. going to be the next thing you got to bring over. What are you waiting for? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and, and their, their ceramics are, are not to my taste. They happen to be a maker of ceramics and, of course, olives in, in that area. Um, but I love the ceramics, believe it or not of the Campania region. I love the ceramics of Sicily more than the Calabrian, my personal taste. They're gonna charge you with treason. No, they're not. <laughs> you did so much for them. They, you you were flying high. All these Calabrians we have, they're gonna hang, they're gonna name their children after you, hang your picture over their bed. And now you just shot the whole thing right down. Pasquale, it's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, all kidding aside, uh, the Bergamo CD is so appreciated, and I, I appreciate that you love it um, uh, very much and that you've, um, you're promoting it to your friends uh, to, to, to check out. Michael, 
that's the CD that you handed to me personally in Clark Summit. That was the one that when we told you that we were Calabrese, you were like, you've got to hear this CD. And that's the one that I still have to this day. You signed it to me and it's cherished because I think that it's due to that CD that put me on my whole. I need to start learning the Southern Italian regional languages of my town's quest. <laughs> so I can't thank you enough for that. It is a gorgeous CD. Anybody that's of Calabrese descent needs to listen to this because it's fantastic. It really brings you there. And didn't you, I feel like I remember when I first got it, there was like a bergamot scent inside the CD. A, a, a bergamot scent yes. and a tea bag. Yep. And, and a, a girl, Earl Grey tea bag uh, stuck in between yep. the jewel case. Yes. I remember that. Remember. And because of you, I even have like the bergamot um, <laughs> essential oil that I put on in here Very <laughs> during nice. the day. Yeah. You know, it's so funny you say that. I was fascinated to find out not that long ago that the bergamot oils, bergamotto oils, have, um, I guess, uh, cancer-fighting properties. And I've been reading a lot about the, the use of oil or the juice uh, of the bergamotto, which is, you know, obviously the essential oil is the big product, but the juice, which is in some way a byproduct, actually has great cancer-fighting properties as well. And like you say, 80% comes from Calabria. And you've hit another theme. Everything that I try to do to the best of my abilities has healing aspects to it. Olive oil, healing properties, vacationing in Calabria, getting away from the hustle and bustle heals you. Balsamic vinegar also has healing properties as well. If you think about one of the biggest disinfectants, even though you should not be using balsamic vinegar for disinfecting or cleaning glass, white vinegar is used yeah. for disinfecting. Um, music, big yeah. healer. Sure. Obviously, if done correctly and properly and authentically, it's a sensory memory that you never let go. She remembers when she got the Bergamo CD. Mm -hmm. Stephanie, that makes me so happy. Yeah. Patrick is remembering when he got his uh, I, I play Bergamo your CD. song. That makes me very happy. I love, love, love that CD. And everybody out there, if you have a Galabrese background and you want your kids to understand what their great, great, great grandparents spoke like before they came here, take Michael's CD. I mean, like, have you ever really loved a woman? Siami Nafimina in Galabrese. Like, how can you beat that? Yeah, that's true. You know, beyond the preservation of the local language, which to me is just gigantic. It's a big part of what we do here on the show. I am always fascinated by Calabria as a place that is mysterious still to me, which is kind of unique in the south of Italy for me. So uh, I, I, I relish the opportunity to read about it, learn about it, and to engage in its culture as best I can. And uh, You've done an amazing job of being an ambassador for that. And I mean, gosh, th there's so much more we could talk to you about from your life and your bio. Uh, obviously, I mean, we could do this again, hopefully soon, because you are a great pleasure. I'm very sorry that we didn't have the chance to really meet and get to know each other earlier in my time at NIAF. I'm glad we have done it now. And uh, I'm certainly glad that you have made two very, very dear and uh, very, very proud friends in Pat and Stephanie because they just speak so highly of you. And I certainly understand why now. You're just a great pleasure. 
the pleasure is all mine. I appreciate uh, you giving me this platform to share my story, my stories. I'm glad uh, that Stephanie and Patrick are are uh, good friends and, and fans for life. And John, I look forward to connecting. So whenever you come into the city in between appointments or whatever, we'll sit down and we'll break some bread together or have a coffee. That'd be great. Tell the audience where they can find your yeah your work and, and everything you're doing. What, what's the website sure. and how they find you? My website is michaelcastaldo.com. You could spell Michael anyway, you'll get there. Um, and um, Facebook, social media, uh, of course, uh, you can follow me there, Twitter. Um, and my music is available, CDs at my concerts um, and Amazon and streaming all the various digital platforms, uh, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Deezer, uh, YouTube, of course, as well, too. Yeah. A highly recommended, not just for the musical talent and the great content, but for a great guy. So we're really happy to have spent the time together and uh, I know what I'm going to be listening to when we get off the call. And I'm very much looking forward to having you back again in the future and, and getting some time face to face. So this has been a great pleasure for all of us. And hopefully for you two out there in the audience, we hope you've enjoyed. Make sure, like Pat says, get the CDs, support a great artist, but more importantly, support a great Italian American and somebody we're proud to call a friend of the show. So we've enjoyed it. Hope you have too. And from all of us, the Italian American podcast, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. That's the first time you've ever had to do an alt take on the Rye exit. <clears throat> <laughs> you, <laughs> choked, <laughs> I'm like, you choked a little bit there. Yeah.